0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you and praise you for your mercies, which are new every morning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would send forth your Holy Spirit during this time of study and learning. We ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher. We ask, Lord, that you would be the one to open our ears and open our hearts to hear from you and to receive what it is that you have for us today. I ask, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, that you would show us our need for you and then your gracious love and rescue of us, not just at the beginning, but every day of our lives. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so I um, this um, this is the first of four weeks, and the four weeks are basically some of my thoughts that I've worked out, um, through my time of sabbatical earlier this year in this, during the first part of the summertime. And so I, um, you know, I feel like we talk about justification by faith so much as a church and we're really good on that, which is really good. But, um, and that's one thing that all evangelicals can agree on when we're studying scripture and we're saying, how do we know that we're saved? We all come to the same place. We might differ a little when we get into Catholic or Orthodox conversations, but as Protestants, we're all Pretty much on the, we're on the same page. But it's actually when we get into, um, what does this life look like? What is our Christian life meant to look like? And what does it mean that God desires for us to be holy and makes us holy? How does that play out in our day to day lives now? We all agree also on the end that we'll be raised from the dead. Jesus will return, mm-hmm. we'll be raised from the dead, never to, never to die again, never to sin again. Our sin will die with us when we die. But between those two fixed points, there, there's um, there's a lot of difference on what does it look like, and w- and what we believe about sanctification affects how we assume we're supposed to live. How now shall we live as Christians? So um so this week, and then I'll be doing three more throughout the rest of the weeks of October, and I'll tell you about my different titles for those as we get to the end of it. But I wanted to begin tonight today as um, kind of a broader broader beginning what is sanctification not when we look at scripture before we start to talk about what it is in the next three weeks so um, what I'd say is um, as Christians we are those who've been crushed you could say by the hammer of the law of all of the um, the law saying do this and our inability to do this is crushing to us and that's a good thing it feels terrible in the moment but it's a good thing so we are as Christians are those who've been crushed by the hammer of the law and then we've received and believed the word of God's grace to us in Christ and so that's what it means to be justified by faith through faith in Jesus Christ by grace because of his cross and as Christians then because of this you could say that we enter into a rest that promised rest to the people of Israel that the promised land signified to them so many centuries ago. Um, but we, uh, we are into, uh, and we'll have a heavenly rest for all eternity with Jesus Christ, but there's a sense now in which that rest enters into our life. A rest from our labors, a rest from our own self-justification, a rest from being measured by our works instead of being measured by Christ's work. But sometimes it's hard for us to rest. If you've ever tried to take a day off or actually live out a Sabbath, which is one of the Ten Commandments, interestingly enough, um, it's it's one of the most gracious of the commandments because it actually has such a blessing. If we were to obey it and follow it, there's that sense of resting is is equated with faith. And so when we're in this place of rest as Christians, don't we always ask, what can we do? <laughs> How um, Isn't there something I must now do? What can I do? Um, someone might... Let me just check on the door. Um, how now shall I live is really the question that we ask as Christians. Oh, no, maybe not. <laughs> A phant- phantom knock. Um, how now shall we live as Christians is often the question that we ask. And that's the question that sanctification, um, in, in this, in uh, trying to understand sanctification, it, people in various ways will try to answer how we should live in different way- ways. Some will answer by saying, well, now that we have been saved by grace, we must obey the law. They reason, these people reason that because we are new creatures, surely now we must be able in some measure to keep the law and therefore we must. We must set it before us and ourselves and strive, strive, strive to obey the law and that's what we are to do in this life. They imply that if we keep the law to whatever degree that we are now able to, then we'll rid ourselves of the power of sin. In our lives, there's still this sort of back and forth. If I can outweigh almost my bad deeds with good deeds, there's still this weighing um, approach to sin and to holiness. Um, So, proceeding also from the same rationale is a view of progression. People who believe this way, in this weighing of good deeds versus bad deeds now as Christians, will also perceive that as you um, grow, in years, as a Christian, somehow we also will grow in obedient, increased obedience, decreasing tendency to sin, and therefore growth in holiness. And this is what well-meaning religious people envision um, when they use the words holiness or sanctification. This is what they perceive that the New Testament is seeing when the um, New Testament writers use the word holiness or sanctifications, Sanct- sanctification. And theologians will sometimes call this the active righteousness of the Christian. Passively we're righteous because Christ's, because of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. But then they would say, well, now it's time to roll up your sleeves and get to work, right? How many have heard this? Is this? Is this kind of what you believe or what you believed in certain circles? Or have you been a part of Christian groups where this was the belief? Well, I would put forward that there are many hazards, and I'm not alone in this. There are a lot of other theologians that look at this. There are many hazards to imagining the Christian life this way. First and foremost, that it's not the biblical picture. That ought to be our primary concern, is to say, well, what does Scripture say? And that's what we'll look at first today. Um, so, first of all, this, this view is unfounded in the Bible, and it even counters the witness of Scripture to the spiritual reality of salvation. Scripture bears witness to an overlap of the ages, um, to the total right, totality of righteousness that believers have in Jesus Christ, and to the totality of sin's pervasion and the perversion of the old being, even while the new being has been created in Christ. And so logically, these scriptural truths cannot be held alongside a view of progressive holiness, required obedience to the law for for Christians, and so-called sanctification in this life. You cannot have um, salvation by justification by faith and then uh, ongoing sanctification by works. It doesn't logically proceed one from the other. And I hope to show that to you. But I love pushback, so feel free to ask um, or um, disagree. So let's begin with Scripture. Let's look first and foremost at Scripture. Um, sanctifi- sanctify or sanctification first in the Old Testament, even just that word group. When you look at it in the Old Testament, we often will see um, there are these... Um, Old Testament injunctions and rules that you have in Scripture. And um, the Lord will say all these rules through through Moses in Leviticus. Um, especially you'll find them, some very specific rules and some more general rules. And then there's often this refrain that goes along with them. And I've written out one of them, keep my statutes and do them. There are a lot of specific rules before he's writing that in Leviticus 20 verse 8. Keep my statutes and do them. And then here's the refrain, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of very specific commands, do this, don't do this, still the role of making holy is attributed to God. He's the active subject of the sentence, and and the people of God are the passive recipients of God's work even while they're being called to obedience they're still passive in the work of sanctification and this is reflected in all these other references um, and you also see um, Ezekiel bringing it forward as well and Ezekiel will say um, the same refrain as a promise for the future in Ezekiel 37 there's the vision of the valley of dry bones if you recall and Ezekiel is commanded by the Lord to prophesy to the wind and to prophesy to the breath and to prophesy to the bones that they 'll then live, and sure enough, an army is remade, and the whole, and the Holy Spirit makes them alive it 's one of the, one of the most wonderful. Old Testament prophecies, enacted prophecies of resurrection and of what will happen at the end of all things in Jesus Christ. So there's this promise that the law will be obeyed from the heart by the people of Israel without even being commanded to. They will obey the law. They'll find themselves obeying the law. There will be life. There are all these other things that are promised here in Ezekiel 37. And then in um, the sanctuary of the Lord will be in the midst of his people, which that promise is fulfilled in part through Jesus's incarnation, through the coming of the Holy Spirit spirit at Pentecost, but it will be ultimately fulfilled when the new Jerusalem descends and the lamb there is the light of the city of God, right? God himself is dwelling with us, his people on the new earth. And so this prophecy is, um, it's amazing at the very end of this prophecy, we hear this same refrain. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Again, the Lord is the agent, the active subject of the sentence and his people are passive in it. So that's one of the things to note and notice about the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the, there are there. I'm going to give you probably predominantly, predominantly the view is one of passivity on the on the human beings' part. God is active, active in Christ, active in the Holy Spirit, active in our lives because of Christ in the Holy Spirit, and we are passive in it. So that's one thing to notice. The other thing we think about sanctification as the ongoing thing happening now in the present. Well, in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the New Testament, most of the examples of sanctification refer to to what has already been done in Christ. They're in the past tense, which is something interesting for us to grapple with as we continue to look at what does it mean to live as a Christian in this ongoing life? Um, What does sanctification mean for us as Christians in an ongoing way. So here in Acts 20, um, Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders as he's headed back to Jerusalem. He doesn't know it, but he sort of knows it that something bad is going to happen. And sure enough, he's arrested and taken on from there after a few years to Rome. Paul's final word to the Ephesian elders is, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's the past tense. Who have been sanctified already is what he's saying, which is an interesting thing to say about Christians. We are already made holy in Jesus Christ. Again, Paul witnessing to um, a Roman leader who was his captor during his pr- imprisonment. And Paul is witnessing about his conversion. And he quotes what Jesus said to him there um, on the Damascus road. And shortly thereafter, Jesus told him that he would be a minister to the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isn't that wonderful? Do you hear the passivity again? And it's also past tense. In the original language, it's have been. It's not just are sanctified. Our sanct- sanctified is the state currently that we're in. We are sanctified. We have been sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so moving on from there, there are a couple of other um, references where this same passivity is um, is noticeable. We see it um, even here in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, you were sanctified. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Um, and then also in Hebrews 10, we have been sanctified. It's more explicit there in the English, even though in the Greek, it's all the same participle. It's all that passive, uh, or excuse me, that passive and past tense um, God is the one who sanctifies we have been sanctified moving on just to be just to cover all my bases I feel like I need to show you some of the other ones that aren't ex, um, explicitly past tense or passive there are some other references in Hebrews in 1 Corinthians 1 um, where um, where there's still God is active but it's not necessarily saying that the sanctification has happened in the past tense just to confuse us right for you sorry um, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source still God is the agent and the active subject and then in Hebrews 10 by a single offering he Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified there's a present tense but it's still passive. We are still passive in that work of sanctification. And then in um, 1 Corinthians 1.30, um, that Jesus Christ himself is both our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. We would consider um, our redemption and our righteousness to be things that have already happened in Christ Jesus. Already we are justified. Already we've been redeemed. Um, And yet it's interesting that sanctification is tied in with that as well. Again, we're still passive in that. And then finally, um, here we see Second um, Thessalonians. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here, sanctification is still tied to faith. We're still passive in it. It's the active work of God here through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, even though... It is um, this, it, and it's interesting that sanctification is tied into that bigger word of salvation. Salvation encompasses our justification, our sanctification, and our redemption, as it's said in this word, and then also the restoration that will happen um, when we are raised from the dead. And then First Peter one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Do you hear this Trinitarian mention as. Peter is addressing Christians, he's identifying them according to um, the, the triune God and the different works of the persons of the triune God, the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. I'm going to pause. So do you see it's mostly passive, almost all passive. Some, a lot of it is past. Some of it appears to be present and ongoing, but God is still the agent at work. Any thoughts or questions or observations about this while I pause for a little breath? Anybody notice anything? It's fun. I love, forgive me for being so nerdy, but I love looking at what does Scripture say, what does all the Scripture say about one particular word or one particular idea? It's helpful because it can change our perceptions. We always want our perceptions to be adjusted (laughs) and recalibrated according to Scripture and not according to anything else. Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah. I love you, and I see you all the time, so I'm going to ask Julie first. <laughs> My husband will not be offended. Julie, do you want to go first? Just to clarify, the sanctification, what does it mean exactly. Thank you for asking. I'm glad you asked. Thank you. I didn't define it for you. So, sanctification comes from the root, same root word as holy. And so, you'll see in the Greek, it'll say saints, and saints means holy ones. And Christians are called saints from the very beginning of the life of faith. And so that saint and holy and holiness and sanctification, those words are all related. And they all mean, uh, to a certain sense, the, to be set apart. And they're tied in inextricably with righteousness. There's a sense of God being, he is the holy one, right? And in his holiness, um, he's set apart and distinct from all sin. Um, And and that's why in the Old Testament, you see, you know, when he's on the mountain at Mount Sinai, he tells Moses, don't let the people come towards the mountain because it'll be dangerous for them to be in my presence, in the presence of a holy God sin cannot stand. and sin will be consumed and sinners will be consumed in the presence of a holy God and so he sets up these precautions to help protect his people so that they can enter into some measure of relationship with him and so you see that at Mount Sinai you see it in the temple the way there was like a bullseye going all the way into the middle of the temple where the holy of holies was where God's very presence was um, his perfection his righteousness his justice in his, his perfect holiness and sinners would be in danger as they came in close. and so the blood of the bulls and goats that they sacrificed would provisionally temporarily atone for their guilt and then they could enter in to relationship. And so what we see is that for us in Jesus Christ, there has been a once and for all sacrifice in Jesus through his death on the cross so that he has entered in as um, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, he's entered into the holy of holies in the heavenly places. He there has paved the way for us as sinners into relationship with a holy God. And then he also, by his death and resurrection, he sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And because that holiness and righteousness are tied together, we would say um, when we talk about being justified, what what the legal sense of justification involves the fact that as God the judge sees us in all of our sinfulness and all of our brokenness, he actually sees the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who's our substitute or our representative. Um, and so because of Jesus' death, we can stand before God knowing we're covered. The blood, sprinkling by his blood, that blood of Jesus covers our sin and atones for our guilt and paves the way for us into an eternal relationship with God the Father. And so that hiddenness in Christ is, is still there eternally. That's our, Inheritance as ones who believe in Him. And so that holiness and justification are really tied together. And I'll, we'll look at why aren't we holy? We are holy. We aren't holy. We are justified and we're still also sinners in this life. And we'll look at what that means, um, going forward, what that means for us and how we experience that. And then also, um, how do we live in the midst of that? You know, what are we called mm-hmm. to do? What do we do about that? Because well, that's what we keep wanting to ask. Lord, what do we do? Was there, yeah, did I see, Kaylee, did you want to add something? I don't Always just heard it explain this, justification is the moment that you have faith that Jesus died for your sins, and so you're perfectly like as you stand before God at that moment when you're justified, you are perfect. You're yeah. Good. Yeah. But sanctification is like as I, I think I relate a lot to what you said. Like some people believe as you go on in years, you become more. Yeah. Learn more. Yeah. Become more obedient. And I've always heard sanctification is like the process where you become more like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And there's, and we can talk about that. There is some in scripture that talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's this idea that we, beholding his face, will be transformed from glory to glory, transformed into the likeness of Christ. So even while we are legally righteous and justified, there's this sense in which God makes that, um, legal truth literally true as well and yet what I would say and this is the danger of it is that it's not fully true until we're raised from the dead and anyone I think it's easier I don't want to I don't want to tag on your youth but I will say the more time and no offense to my elderly friends or my grandparents the more time you spend with people in their 80s or 90s or 70s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the more you realize they're not perfect, especially even Christians, even the most beloved Christians who are so faithful and reading their Bibles and going to church and they love God and they really love God. And sometimes, I almost think sometimes what happens is you see the sins that were always there that haven't yet been healed. Yes. And so I think that's where healing language is helpful when looking at our sin in this life. Um, I think it's valuable to yeah. think about it not because we can follow the law more closely or not because we can sin less, but because we can behold his glory more. And we'll talk about that in the next few weeks. What does it look like? What what happens? What does it look like? Who's in charge of it happening? Yeah. Um, so I think those are all good good points to make. Um, yeah, thank you, Kaylee. Anyone else? Yeah, so thanks, Judy. It appears that in your examples from the Old Testament, the yeah. sanctification took on more of the meaning of obeying the law. Is that correct? Well, in the Old Testament, it appears, you know, the Lord Mm -hmm. says when he gives the Ten Commandments, you will be holy Mm -hmm. as I am holy. And the people say, we were just reading this in the Jesus Storybook Bible. They're like, and it's true, it's accurate to Scripture, which is so helpful. They say, we will do all these things. I mean, Girl Scouts swear, Pinky swear, we're going to do it. And Mm -hmm. which is so funny because, and I feel like the Lord in hearing them say that is like, no, you won't. <laughs> Thank you, but no, you won't. You just wait and see. <laughs> and again, they swear, we'll do it all. We'll do it all, God. We're going to do all of this. And no, of course they don't. And so in some ways, you could see the whole history of the Old Testament as the Lord um gently and patiently showing his people just how sinful they are. And in in some ways, you could see all of our lives as the Lord slowly and gently showing us just how sinful we are it's it's merciful that he doesn't reveal all of our sin to us from the very beginning but that he in some ways and we'll talk about this in the next few weeks that in some ways he um he reveals it bit by bit because if we saw all of it at once from the very beginning of our life of faith yes we'd be convicted and we'd be um put our trust in him and yet we might be too too much we might despair of him ever being able to heal us and make us righteous so um, I hope that helps a little bit. But, but yeah, there is that holiness tied in with sanctification. Um, well, and I would say I would say no about the progression. I'm going to stick to my no about the progression. And we'll talk about it in the next several weeks. Why no to progression? Um, but I want to... Scott, did you have a question or a yeah. comment? So um, it seemed clear, based on what you showed at the beginning, that scripture falls really falls on one side of the debate about how sanctification works. We haven't looked at the flip side, which oh, I'll get okay. to. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I was going to say, is there anything, um, do you, do you think the people who, who, because there's a debate about it, you think the people who, who disagree with that view are just like crazy or is there, or is, or is there anything to be said for their view? And it sounds like you were going to say, I think yeah. there is something to be said. I still feel like it doesn't, it doesn't as accurately depict what it doesn't as accurately uh, um, show what scripture is God. saying, because when you take into account, Especially Paul's letters, but you hear it also coming from other, you know, apostles writing letters or writing gospels that the, um, predominantly sanctification is viewed as God's work in us. And somehow it's mostly past and tied in with our justification. There's some sense of in which it's present. And I would say that that's because of the overlap of the ages. And we'll look at that in in a few slides. And then there's some sense in which, um, the perfect holiness won't happen until the resurrection from the dead. Um, and so there's this longing for that future um, perfection that is not ours and won't be ours until then. So there is a little bit, and let's look right now. So Romans 6, I'd encourage you to read this on your own, is one of those, um, one of the two passages that I have where there's some sense in which sanctification is so tied to the holiness of what we do or what we don't do you know kind of an assessment based on what we do or what we don't do but it, um, in this passage still so um, there's still this sense of totality of it and also of um, of having been sinful in, in prior to Jesus Christ and now in him there's a different reality a new reality going on um, so um, here let's just read Previously, prior to Christ, the Romans and we are slaves to impurity and lawlessness, disobedience to the law, um, leading to more lawlessness, sin kind of beginning sin, getting as bad as sin can get, kind of reveling in like a pig in the mud, um, the sin of sin leading to sin and leading to death, of course. But lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And then he uses a phrase that is righteousness leading to sanctification. And the way Paul speaks rhetorically is so rooted and grounded in the parallelism of Hebrew pro- poetry. If you ever read the Psalms, have you noticed this? When you read the Psalms, one verse will say da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the next, verse, the next line will say basically the same thing reworded. And that was part of the poetry that they loved, was that beauty of repetition, using different words to say the same thing. And so Paul here, I believe, is trying to use parallelism To say the same thing. He's saying lawlessness led to lawlessness. And righteousness leads to sanctification. So he's not saying you do good things by obeying the law. And you therefore are making yourself holy by them. He's saying rather you've been made righteous in Jesus Christ. And there is fruit of righteousness in that holy life that comes about. Not because of your striving necessarily, but simply because of the, but maybe, but simply more than that because of the drastic difference in your status, in your reality. You were slaves to lawlessness, now you're slaves to righteousness. Um, you were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to Jesus Christ. Um, and so you see this here again in verse 22. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get from living your life, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's this fruit of good living that happens in your life. But remember, fruit is less dependent on the actual plant as much as it's dependent upon the gardener and the one growing the plant, the conditions, the soil, the sun, the light, the water. Um, And so the Lord is always seen as being the gardener of the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of sanctification in our life. Um, And again, he follows this up. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you see that free gift, grace, is really tied into eternal life, and that grace can be logically read back into verse 22. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. Those are God's gift to us rather than our reward for doing some kind of amazing work. So just to keep going on, there's one more... um, Use of the word sanctification in First Thessalonians, where it's tied in specifically with holiness. Um, Paul is urging them to walk or to live in a certain way um, based on their new identity, their new reality in Christ. And he says, you live in this way just as you are doing, do so more and more. So you know, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he would go on to more things. So you see here, this is the only time sanctification is tied in with a to-do being given to the people who are hearing it. But the to-do is so gracious. The way Paul gives his to-dos in his letters, towards the end of his letters, involves language that's still very passive. Walk this way. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. As you have Jesus in your sights, this path will be clear to you. It will be easy for you. It won't be this striving and this work that you have to do yourself. And then there's also this sense in which um Paul here, even while he's giving a command, do this, abstain from sexual immorality. He's so gracious about it. And he's this way all throughout his letters. He's commanding it. But then he's saying, You know how you ought to do it. You've already received it. I don't even have to say it, even though he does have to say it, otherwise he wouldn't be writing it. And he says, you aren't doing it, which is why I'm saying it. But he is saying instead, you are already doing this. Even so, do it more and more. He is imputing to them what they are not doing, which is, he's imputing this righteousness by his words. He's saying... You're doing this already, but you're not. But go ahead and do it even, do it even more. Even more. Abstain from sexual immorality is pretty much a plus or a minus. There isn't a lot of gray in there, in there. And yet he's suggesting, you're doing this already, but do it even more. By which he's saying, just do it. But instead of saying just do it, he is, um, he's calling that righteousness out of them. And that's what the Word of God does for us. The Word of God calls us righteous in Jesus Christ, even when our actions, um, show that we are not. And so that's actually, he's doing, he's giving them some imputation right there. So moving on from there, one of the realities of sin in this life, the other th- thing that scripture shows us so clearly is this overlap of the ages. And I love, I love a good diagram, which is why I love this one. I borrowed it from someone and you can find out where it is if you really want to know where it is. Um, but this overlap of the ages bears witness to the reality that already we've been saved in Jesus Christ and yet, we're still waiting for something. Um, the reality is that through his, the event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there's this fixed point in time. The old age of oppression, exile, sin, suffering, and death is essentially over in Jesus' first coming. And yet, it will be fully realized when he returns the second time. And so you could say it's like a long engagement. Um, the reality of the new age the coming age of, excuse me, life, hope, peace, holiness, righteousness, that has already entered in to our worlds through the fixed point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And yet, it won't be fully realized until Jesus returns, and we're raised from the dead, and and eternity begins, essentially, at that point. So we live in this sort of weird rectangle right here, right? We live in this weird rectangle where we experience Suffering and illness in our bodies and um, disruption in the world at large and tsunamis and terrible things happening all around the world and also the terrible things happening in our own life that are caused by us. We still experience sin in this life. In, in, In God's eyes, we are righteous. And yet sin lingers on because the old Deborah, the old person, lingers on during this present age. And yet when Jesus returns, finally sin will be dead. Um, in me when I die sin will die and only the new Deborah in Christ the new creation that we are as Paul says in Galatians I'm a a new creature in Christ a new creation that new creation lives on um, eternally and lives on from the moment of faith um, because of the event of Jesus Christ's life death and resurrection any thoughts about that does that help to distinguish why are we still sinning as Christians um, there is this sense in which sin is still real, even in our lives as Christians, which can be frustrating. Any thoughts about that? Well, so this is the bigger witness of Scripture, and it bears witness to the reality individually. As individuals, we are still totally sinful. Um, sin's perversion is um, is composed not just of evil deeds or um, individual sins, but sin is a condition a disease, an addiction, I would even say a spiritual genetic mutation. It's an evil inheritance that clouds our whole being and comes to the surface in ways and sometimes we try to stuff it back down so that other people wouldn't see it but it's still there on the inside. And yet at the same time the spiritual reality is that we are also totally righteous in Jesus Christ. We are justified, we are sanctified, we are made holy in Him. It's imputed to us from outside, it's spoken over us it doesn't fade or wear out and so this simultaneous reality we like to um, use some of the latin that luther used at the reformation to describe this we're simile justus et peccator simultaneously just or righteous and also sinful still even in christ um the, the old person lives on and this is what paul is bearing witness to in romans 7. As we know, verse um, 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And there's some question, is this about Paul before faith or after he's come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is he narrating about this? And at the very end, it seems that it's very clear that it's about him after the life of faith. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, not just his body he's talking about, but his sinful flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is this, dual reality, uh, even as Christians, that lingers on. And so if that's the case, then um, I I think that we can't just separate sanctification from justification. Um, One of my favorite theologians identifies beautifully the impossibility of separating sanctification from justification in uh, one of his essays on this topic. He points out um, the helpful, there's a linguistic fact in German that the word for salvation is, Das Heil, while the word for sanctification is die Heiligen, which means, in English, being salvation. There's salvation, and sanctification is being salvation. Do you hear that passivity of the New Testament language echoed in the way the Germans talk about sanctification? Um, so again, there is this... Um, you can't separate it from justification. I would also say sanctification does not equal simply living a moral or virtuous life. It's not about doing more or trying harder, but rather it could be better characterized as uh, more of a death. Um, The death of the old Adam, the death of the old Deborah, um, the death of the old age, even while the um, continued life and rebirth of the new person, um, living into the reality of the new Deborah. Um, I love this. same theologian says that um, it could be best defined. Here are some of my quotes from him. could be best defined as the art of getting used to the unconditional justification wrought by the grace of God for Jesus' sake. I love that one. He says again, it's the new life arising from the catastrophe suffered by the old, upon hearing that God alone saves. He's tying it right there into our justification by faith instead of by works. He would say the justified life or the Christian life or sanctification is what happens when the old being comes up against the end of its self-justifying and self-gratifying ways, however pious. So one way to think about this is um, this, the obedience to the law, this civil righteousness. It's really the concern of the old person that wants to get the star, that wants to get dessert because they ate all their dinner, but actually being a new being in Christ means that we've already been given dessert when we didn't deserve it, and so then we have to have a different approach to the wor- world. He has a lovely way of describing this. He says the old world, the old age, and the old creature is characterized by the if-then rules of the of the universe. And I love this. If I if I eat my dinner, I'll get my dessert. I was always that that kid. If I study hard, I'll get an A. Um, if I do this, then I'll do that. If, we, or if I work really hard, then I'll get a paycheck. Um, and we, we adapt this um, aspect of the universe to our relationship with God. Um, playing by the rules should produce a favorable outcome. And we find that comforting. But we read this same conditionality of the world into our relationship with God. We want to have a sense of control. Uh, we want to be able to say to God, well, I've put in my 65 cents. Where is my Coca-Cola? I've been a good girl. Why aren't you giving me what I want? And there's a lot of self right That's the epitome of self-righteousness and self-justification. Forte is so beautiful about this. He says, um, God's seething act in Jesus Christ is not based upon this kind of conditionality. Instead, it's an unconditional promise characterized not by if-then grammar, but by a because Therefore, grammar, I love this. Because Jesus Christ died and rose for us, therefore, we are new creatures. This is the language that calls forth the new being. And the new being's lifestyle is up to God. The new being will live a holy life despite herself um, because I can't help it. Um, And then I won't even be able to take credit for it. So much the better. The new being um, will, um, will be totally different in Christ. Um, And so again, um, sanctification, I love this, is not a repair job. God doesn't just want to patch us up or us to patch ourselves up or to outweigh our bad deeds with good deeds. God is after something totally new. He wants his creation back as new as when it came from his hand. And so with this in mind, when we look at this growth that we perceive in our lives or in the lives of some, we would say instead of it being um, a growth in holiness based on our own works, rather we could describe it as being captivated more and more by the totality the unconditionality of the grace of God. And so for next week, we'll look at this more. We'll look at what does it mean to grow in grace? What does it mean um, to be this new creature, to be someone um, who's being sanctified? Um, and so we'll look at, um, let me just go on from here. We'll look at um, sanctification as growth in grace next week. And then in two weeks, we'll look at a Christian motto for sanctification, um, which my motto that I've come up with is, I wouldn't put it past me. Um, so we'll look at kind of that, um, that approach through humility rather than through deeds of righteousness. How, um, how instead does God actually change us? And then also looking at God's hidden work of suffering and sanctification. How does suffering uh, do the work of God in transforming us into his likeness despite ourselves? Again, the, mo- the bottom line, we're not in control. We don't get to say when he's going to cure us from gossiping or lying or um, or lusting or our anger problem. Th- that's ultimately in his hands. So let's pray and then we'll go. Lord Jesus, indeed, we are ultimately in your hands. We thank you, Lord, for your life, death and resurrection. We thank you for making us new already, totally new, even while we linger on in this old age and this old person um, that sins uh, and and brings destruction upon myself and others, Lord. Even so, Lord, would you be the one to transform us into your likeness from glory to glory, as you say in Second Corinthians. And so we ask, Lord, that you would um, visit us mightily in these next several weeks as we continue to look at this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.